Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, let, us, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so you're still reading in Mark and, and in Leviticus, lucky you, uh, if you're following along with our Bible reading plan. Um, and Mark's gospel is, is all, of this, this part of it at least is all about the disciples struggling to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. And, and it's really clear here because he has this little passage, right? They're on their way to Jerusalem and, and they're, they're quite scared for him, the disciples are, because they know that every time he goes to Jerusalem, something bad happens and they get the sense that if he actually goes there this time, he's going to be killed. And, and this is something that Jesus is aware of, right? He even has, in other gospels, he makes sarcastic comments about how you know, prophets can't die unless they're in Jerusalem, right? He's not afraid for his life until he goes to Jerusalem because that's where they all go to get killed. Um, morbid stuff, but he, it's a joke that he makes, right? Jesus makes death jokes. It's, it's weird. Uh, but there is that theme all throughout the Old Testament. Each one of the prophets who is killed by the people is actually killed in Jerusalem. So there's this sense, right? He's playing out the same thing uh, that has happened before over and over again. Um, and so in, in this little beginning of the passage here, he, he just tells them straight up, we're going to Jerusalem. And I know, I know that when we get there, 
I will be handed over to the chief priests, and I know that they will condemn me and hand me over to the Romans, and I know that they will torture me and beat me and kill me. I know this. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. Now, what an incredible thing to hear from your teacher, right? I mean, that, that's mind-blowing stuff. He's literally telling you, yes, I know that you're afraid because I'm going to die. And I am going to die. That's exactly like you are afraid of what is exactly going to happen. This is the plan. I know why you're afraid. We're going to do it anyway. It's like in all the action movies where the hero says, I know it's a trap, and he walks into the room anyway. This is what's happening. I know what's going to happen. That's the whole point. We're going there so that I can die. But it's okay, because I will come back after I die. Don't you see? And then James and John respond to this incredible, wonderful statement with, hey, Jesus, we have a favor to ask. Do whatever we want you to do. Right? It's like they've just been tuning him out the whole time. Like, like he's talking and they're just waiting for their chance to talk so they can ask their question. That's what's going on. They, it's like they've just missed all of this glorious, wonderful stuff. And then, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. Will you do that for us? Um, they're, they're bold guys. It's a bold move right there. They're called the sons of thunder for a reason, by the way. People call them this because they're loud and they're obnoxious and they're maybe a little bit too overconfident. So they come to Jesus and, and they make this really unbelievably bold request, right? Do, do whatever we want you to do. And Jesus is, is kind of gracious in his reply, like, okay, what do you want? And they, they have this, right, let, let, let one of us sit on your right and one on your left when you come into your glory. See, what they think is happening here is they think, they think they've already won, right? They, they think that, that what Jesus is doing is he's going to Jerusalem right now, right now to claim his throne, to inaugurate the new kingdom of God. They think the hard part's over. Somehow they've got it into their heads that they have already essentially won this rebellion and they are on their way to the capital city where Jesus is going to claim his throne, the Romans will be kicked out, and, and then they can start uh, living it up, essentially, right? Because what they're asking for is for positions of power in his new government. That's what they want. Jesus, make us, make us like overseers of people or, or, or give us authority over something or, or make us like your vice regent or something powerful and respectable. They still think, right, after his whole speech about how he's going to die and be raised again, they still think he's about to go overthrow the Romans, lead the Jewish people in glorious rebellion, and then reestablish the, the physical kingdom of Israel. And it will then reign forever and no one will ever hurt them. And, and they think, they think because they're kind of in the inner circle of the disciples along with Peter, right? They, they think that they've kind of got this right to ask for a position of power and safety and wealth and glory. They think they've earned it, right? They, they think, hey, we've put in our time with Jesus. We followed you all through these little towns in the countryside. We did all the things you asked. Isn't it time for our reward? And boy, do they have no clue what is about to happen to them. And Jesus tells them as much, right? <laughs> you don't know what you're asking, the morons. Um, you can, it's the subtext of what Jesus is thinking, right? Did you not hear what I just said? You don't know what you're asking. 
And then he asked him, like, do you really think, do you really think you're ready for this? It's essentially that next part of the line, right? Can you drink the cup that I drink? Do you really think you're ready? Yeah, Jesus, of course we are. Of course. We've flawed you all this way. Absolutely, we're ready for this. And if they knew what he was really going to do, they would have been terrified by this next line, right? You will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Because, of course, with the hindsight of history, we, we know that actually all but one of the disciples is killed for his faith. They just have a ways to go before they get there. <laughs> he has this line, right? To sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom it has been prepared. And it's this really mysterious and vague phrase until you get to John, uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. See, these are the two for whom that position of glory has been prepared. Crucifixion is a punishment that is reserved for rebels against the Roman Empire. That's what it's for. And so everything about it is designed not just to inflict the maximum amount of pain and suffering, but also to be utterly humiliating and dehumanizing and terrifying for all who witness it, which is why every aspect of it is public, so that the people who walk by the victims on the crosses will know this is what happens to anyone who challenges the authority of Rome. It's not actually an uncommon sight. In fact, during Jesus' lifetime, Pontius Pilate crucified 2,000 Jews at once after a rebellion, not long before this. So the roads going in and out of Jerusalem actually probably were lined with crosses, some of them empty, some of them not. But to die on a cross is like the lowest, most shameful way to die in this world. Everyone sees every instant of your suffering and your pain. And so what Jesus does is he, he goes to Jerusalem and, and he takes this symbol that is supposed to be a symbol of the ultimate authority of Rome and the humiliation and shame of anyone who would dare to challenge that. And he takes it and he defeats it completely and claims it for his own. And it becomes, after that, forevermore, a symbol of the love and the power of God and of the kingdom of God that God is establishing here on earth. See, the disciples think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to inaugurate his new kingdom, and they're right about that part. They just missed what it's going to be like and how he's going to do it. Because he's not lifted up in glory, he's lifted up on a cross. The disciples are essentially thinking worldly thoughts instead of kingdom thoughts. What they're thinking is uh, of power and success as the world defines it rather than as God defines it. We have the same sort of struggle. We tend to view power and success and authority uh, not as God would have us view it, but as the rest of the world has us view it. Which is, when you think about it, why we have so many of the problems we do. This is why so many people are, are, up, are in a panic about what seems to be the declining influence of the church in our society. 
which what they really mean by that is the declining influence of our church and our politics, right? But um, this is also why so many people actually now cling to politics over the gospel. And this isn't, this isn't like an issue that's limited to one side or the other. Democrats and Republicans do this just about at equal rates. Everyone does it. This is why when, when, when elections come around, they're so contentious and even Christians get wrapped up in it because they've put all their hope in this person winning and if this person doesn't win, well, what are we going to do? Because they've forgotten that in the kingdom of God, power and victory and success do not look the way the world th- says they look. Said Jesus and his kingdom are radically different. And we, we, we've been kind of insulated from this for a long time because we're fortunate to live in a place where we're safe and we're protected and we have the ability to gather for worship whenever we want. And we have actually had a whole lot of influence on our society at a very high level for a very long time. And most of us live pretty comfortable lives, right? Especially when compared to the rest of the world. But we are, we are in a very small minority of Christians both throughout history and in the world today. Most people who follow Christ do not live comfortable, safe lives. They just don't. I mean, that's, that's been the story of Christianity for, uh, throughout most of the history of the church. Even now, there are plenty of places in the world where following Christ means to put your life at risk because you're doing something illegal. And it always represents a threat to those in power. Right now, as we speak, There are Methodist churches in the Ukraine, our brothers and sisters, who are opening up the basements of their buildings as bomb shelters. Which means that there are Christians who are staying behind in a war zone to make sure that people who they don't even know have a safe place to go. The clergy over there, many of them have sent their families out of the country and have remained behind themselves so that they can stay and pray with the people who are fleeing from the front. And the incredible thing is, even though those people are not taking up arms, they probably represent a greater threat to Vladimir Putin than any military force ever could. He just doesn't realize it yet. We see this play out all throughout the world. Even today in in China, the underground church exists underground precisely because it's illegal, because it, it preaches against... the the overreach and the evils of the authoritarian government and what happens, see what's going to happen at least eventually, is that that underground church is a bigger threat to the Chinese Communist Party than any other nation on earth. Because we see it time and time again as the church grows, as the kingdom of God spreads. Those who would oppose it always fall. But it doesn't look the way we think it's going to look. Many of you will have seen this in your own lifetimes because if you saw the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, you saw the kingdom of God at work. That happened not through violent revolution, not through invasion or diplomatic pressure. It happened happened because the church in those nations resisted and pushed back and challenged it at every step of the way, and eventually it won out. Not through force of arms or anything else, but, but in peaceful revolution. That doesn't get much playing time in in the stories about about how that came about, but when you look into the history of how those nations freed themselves, the church of God is there at every step. 
the kingdom of God was growing and spreading and resisting and overthrowing and overcoming. All around the world, the kingdom of God still grows and spreads, and it confronts evil in all its forms, and it defeats it every time. But often we miss it because it does not happen the way we think it's going to happen. Often it's subtle. And often it doesn't make the headlines. Jesus' death probably would not have actually made the equivalent of headlines for most people in his day and age, right? I mean, most people in the world wouldn't have been aware that something radical had happened. But that moment begins his kingdom there on earth. The day they nailed him to the cross is the day the countdown began to the end of the Roman Empire. To be a citizen of God's kingdom means to understand that power and success actually look like humility and sacrifice, selflessness, putting others before yourself. And, and the tricky part for us is we live in a world that tells us that uh, the best way to live is the exact opposite, right? We live in a world that insists that you put yourself first, that you take care of yourself first. You acquire as much as you can for yourself and for your family to make sure they're taken care of. And only then, out of the overflow, do you give to others. That's what we've been taught our whole lives. Let me tell you, the Bible says exactly the opposite of that. Over and over again in the Gospels, we see Jesus telling people, no, you just give to people and you trust that God will take care of you. You put others before yourself and you trust that God will take care of you as a written response. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's not at all what we're conditioned or taught to believe. But this is what the kingdom of God is about. Humility and sacrifice and serving others. This is what Jesus came to do, and it's what he came to teach his followers to do. And he takes this group of people who are just this weird mismatch of, of people who don't always get along and who have conflicting views, and, and at least two of them appear to have been part of militant groups who are plotting the overthrow of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, that's why they followed Jesus in the first place. Uh, and he converts them all to doing things differently. And it will spread like wildfire. But it just doesn't look. You see all the time in the Gospels, people are confused because, okay, here's this guy. He's supposed to be the king of the Jews. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like a king. He rides a donkey. He lives in the wilderness. He's, he seems to be quite poor. Uh, he doesn't have an army. And yet he claims to be king. We, like the disciples, we get distracted. We get distracted with, with what the world defines as, as power and success and glory and authority. And we forget what Jesus teaches us, which is that actually, actually the leaders in my kingdom look like servants. The leaders in my kingdom put others before themselves at all times. The leaders in my kingdom are willing to sacrifice for others with no ulterior motive and, and no sort of 
attempt to gain out of it. They just do it. And those are the people, those are the people who will be celebrated in God's kingdom. And so the struggle for us is to actually live that out in our daily lives. To understand that actually, even though it doesn't seem like it, that is how we as the body of Christ change the world. Again, this is sometimes hard for us because we've just not had to deal with big existential crises like Christians elsewhere have. We don't have a government that's oppressing us. We aren't facing an imminent invasion. It's not illegal for us to practice our faith. We can be open about it, and and we can actually uh, wield a lot of political influence in our society, and so the temptation is there to take it and run with it, and boy, have we run with it. And we forget, we forget that actually the first thing that God calls us to do is to be servants of everyone, to sacrifice for others, and to put their needs before our own. In God's kingdom, power and success look like humility and sacrifice. May we be people who live that way. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.